Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Saudi Arabia may be best known for its vast supply of oil, but outside of that industry, tourism is one of the kingdom's biggest businesses. Now, we're not talking about sun and sand, even though they do have plenty of those things. As the home of Mecca, the kingdom is the destination for the annual Hajj pilgrimage that attracts more than 2 million Muslims a year. That, along with other Muslim pilgrimages throughout the year, have been driving growth in tourism with a building boom to match. Today on Benchmark, we'll talk with a colleague who will share his recent experience there, and we'll discuss why religious tourism is becoming an increasingly important part of the Saudi economy. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington. My co-host, Dan Moss, is traveling this week. Now, you may have heard some news about Saudi Arabia lately. It's letting women get driver's licenses for the first time. We'll get to that later with Donna Abu Nasser, a Bloomberg reporter who covers the Middle Eastern economy and governments. But first, I'd like to bring in Siraj Datu. He's an editor for Bloomberg.com based in London. He participated in the Hajj in late August, making the pilgrimage to Mecca with his wife, and is here to talk about his experience and how Hajj has become an economy unto itself. Siraj, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Siraj, I don't know much about Hajj, except I've seen it on TV, people circling the Kaaba, uh, heard about some other things associated with it. Can you give us a little background on Hajj, what it means, why people do it, and why it's such a central part of Islam? Sure. So Hajj is one of the five main pillars in Islam, and it's referenced in the Quran. And most Muslims typically believe that they have to perform the pilgrimage at least once in their lifetime, as long as they can afford it. And one of the moments during Hajj, as you mentioned, that's like typically captured on camera more than anything else is the tawaf. And as you said, that's when Muslims circumambulate the Kaaba seven times. And that's an essential part. And the reason that I think it's shown on camera so often is pretty obvious. It's one of the moments that's got the most easily explained symbolism. The Kaaba is, it's been destroyed and rebuilt countless times, but it's still believed to be the house of God. And that's the direction that Muslims pray in wherever they are in the world. And so whenever Muslims go on holiday, they'll take a compass with them so they know which way Mecca is, so they know which which direction they should pray in. And there are lots of other elements too. So pilgrims walk between two mountains, Safa and Marwa, seven times. Now, the big difference now is that the mountains don't exist anymore. There are little replicas there. And actually, pilgrims walk inside in the comfort of air conditioning. It's not so much the same as it was before. Pilgrims also spend time near Mount Arafah in reflection of God, and they sleep on stones, essentially, in Musdalifah. They spend some time in Mina. And there's a lot that gets packed into just a few days. Wow, it does sound really remarkable. Can you just tell us a little bit about your experience and 
kind of the size and scope of what you witness and what's happening there? Sure. So for a lot of pilgrims, it begins in Medina. It's exciting. Not everyone goes to Medina, but most people try to because it's where the Prophet used to live. It's where the Prophet's mosque is. One of the other reasons it's exciting is that there are so many Muslims all in one place and there's this amazing sense of unity. You've got Muslims from around the world and when you go and pray at the Prophet's Mosque, you meet people from, and I'm just giving an example of the people I met from Somalia, from India, from, uh, I think I think I met people from about different, 12 different countries in Africa, from Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and you just become one big community. That's just Medina. And while Medina gets busy, Makkah, where the Kaaba is, gets packed. This year, about two and a half million Muslims took part in Hajj, and about 1.75 million of them came from outside the country. And one of the most amazing things I learned when I was there is that there are some areas in Makkah which are pretty much just set up for the Hajj period. So, for example, the, the group that I went with when I was there, we didn't stay in a hotel. We stayed in a big apartment block in Azizia, which is a district not too far away from the Kaaba. What I learned is that the rest of the year, when the pilgrims aren't there for Hajj, the, pil- the building is just empty. And that's actually the case for a lot of the buildings in that area. The economy in that area is really just geared up for pilgrims. And here's another example of the scale of the pilgrimage. I typically try to go out to the Kaaba in the evenings because during the daytime it was so hot, it's kind of burning. And one day, you know, we'd pray at the Kaaba for a few hours and then we'd go out to eat. And we've got a huge selection of what do we want to eat. We've got five guys, a halal five guys, uh, which we don't have in London. We've got huge hotels around there too. Uh, one day we went to eat and came back after eating and the whole complex in the Kaaba, so the Grand Mosque, was totally full and the pilgrims were kind of spilling out into the streets and the prayers essentially stretched out about a kilometre up the road. It's a huge number of people trying to just get to the Kaaba and pray all, you know, for that one prayer. It does truly sound like a unbelievably huge event with, you know, you can only begin to imagine the number of people. You start to talk a little bit about the economic scale of what's going on here. Can you just talk a little bit about how this has become such a big business? You know, there are people have been coming there for generations and, and centuries. Why is there such a building boom now to accommodate people? Like you said, this is big business for Saudi. So speaking ahead of this year's pilgrimage, the head of Mecca's Chamber of Commerce and Industry said he expected pilgrims to spend between 20 to 25 billion rials during Hajj. That's around five and a half to six and a half billion dollars. It's a lot of money. The Saudis are also giving this income stream more of a deliberate push. So they're spending about 80 billion dollars on renovating Mecca. That includes expanding the complex of the Grand Mosque and trying to renovate the surrounding areas too. One of the things that happened in recent years is that no pilgrim can get a visa for Hajj without coming through a tour group. And equally, the tour groups have to make sure they arrange accommodation. Part of that's down to safety. They don't want people sleeping in the streets, especially when it gets so hot. But it helps revenue too. And so there's been a very obvious, fierce battle to construct new hotels. Let me give you one example. In 2013, there were about 61,000 hotel rooms in Makkah. By the following year it jumped up by 55,000. And beyond the more obvious revenue streams, there's another benefit. Foreigners can't own land, and so any hotelier has to work with local Saudi developers. 
And when you go for Hajj too, you obviously have different elements that you're paying for. You're, you're paying for your flights, you're paying for the accommodation in all the different places you're staying in. But when you go, you also bring back gifts. Some people spend thousands and thousands of pounds and dollars just on gifts to take back for family. They, they take back prayer beads, prayer mats, anything they can get their hands on, really, kind of like the long uh, Arabic clothes. And when people come back, you know, there's, there's, somewhat of a, there's somewhat of an expectation that you're going to bring something back for your family. If you don't, people are wondering, you know, have you really gone for Hajj? Uh, you've gone there and you thought about your relationship with God and how you've tried to detach from this world. And then you kind of not brought anything back and people start, you know, asking questions. Where, where's my gift? And so you, you don't want to be that person who's not come back with a gift, even if it's something small. I think my wife and I, uh, it, was a, it was an expensive trip. So we spent about £7,000 for both of us to go there. And I think we tried to keep our gifts to a minimum of about £5 each. But some people do spend, like I said, thousands and thousands of pounds just to bring back gifts for their family. Are these kind of uh, local things that are made there? Or are they sort of trinkets that come are made in China? It's it's a mix. I think from what I saw, a lot of the things that were made were from partly down from partly made in China, partly made in Turkey. A lot of the prayer mats actually they have. It's it's a bit weird to say something's a revolutionary prayer mat, but these are the kind of things that we saw. So, for example, when you're at the Kaaba in the Grand Mosque, the whole floor is made of marble, which can be quite tough on your knees for the whole time. But there was one prayer mat that we bought for our time there, and it essentially folds up. So when you, you, when you pray, you can fold it down and pray. Uh, and when you're not praying, you can fold up and you can lean back against it and it kind of becomes a chair. And it's like small things like this that, you know, people will pay easy money for. So, you know, I think that, was, that cost us about £10, but it felt totally worth it when you were there. You definitely have a captive audience there. It definitely <laughs> also sounds like a, a, a real global event. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's talk about the economy some more there. I want to bring in Donna Abu Nasser. Donna is a reporter based in Beirut covering Middle Eastern economies and governments, but she's very familiar with Saudi Arabia. She started covering the country for the Associated Press in 2002 and opened AP's first bureau in the nation in Riyadh in 2008. Donna, thanks for returning to the podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Donna, can you tell us how tourism and especially Islamic tourism fits into the overall Saudi economy and, and just how they're trying to wean their dependence off of oil there? 
Uh, well, tourism has been earmarked by the government as a major driver for growth uh, in a plan, if you recall, uh, to diversify the economy. Uh, it was rolled out last year. It's called Vision 2030. And um, it's coming at a time when crude prices are at about half their 2014 peak. Uh, that ended more than a decade of prosperity. So religious tourism, both the main uh, one, Hajj, that Siraj talked about, and Domra, which is a lesser pilgrimage performed throughout the year, are key to this. Now, the aim of the vision is to increase the number of Omra pilgrims to 30 million a year by 2030. And it's important to note here that financial benefits will not only come from the money that the pilgrims spend, pilgrims like Siraj, for instance, um, as more of them visit the kingdom, more airports and ports and hotels and roads will need to be developed. So that means more employment and investment opportunities. So you said 30 million tourists per year for the, for the Umrah is the goal? Yeah, by 2030. And what is it now? I think it's about, it reached about 8 million in 2015. That was after the expansion of the two holy mosques that uh, Siraj talked about. So we're talking about a real growth industry like no other. I mean, if you're, if you're going to be almost quadrupling the number of tourists, I mean, that really shows uh, a strong desire by the kingdom and the leadership to you know, not be so dependent on oil like you were talking about. Now, another thing in the news recently was that, you know, most of us noticed the announcement that the ban on women driving cars uh, was going to be lifted next year. Can you give us a sense on how that recent decision fits into all this liberalization of the economy? Um, of course. I mean, at first, it's a right many women have been fighting for. But um, as women are um, are entering the workforce in larger numbers, uh, they need to be able to get to the office. Uh, women spend a big chunk of their income on drivers, something like an average of $500 a month. So this is disposable income that will be released into the economy, and it will stay in the country as opposed to leaving it in the form of you know, most women have foreign drivers who send money back home. So this will potentially help the retail sector, which has suffered a lot in the past couple of years with the, oil, uh, with the low oil prices. There could also be a short boost in car sales, and demand for car insurance and loans is likely to increase. Is there a way for Saudi Arabia to maintain its ultra-conservative image and be this destination for Muslim tourism, while at the same time opening its economy, liberalizing such cultural norms as these and, and being less dependent on oil? Um, it, Saudi Arabia is the birthplace of Islam. The king is the custodian of Islam's two holiest mosques. So the kingdom has always been careful that its Islamic credentials are not questioned. Uh, when the kingdom said it will allow women to drive, and this has been the most dramatic move so far in its bid to open up the Sa uh, Saudi society, it was important to show that the decision had the backing of the religious establishment. And indeed, many prominent clerics and the kingdom's top religious body commended the order, while highlighting at the same time the need to abide by Islamic requirements. Siraj, can you jump in here? I'm curious as to what you saw on the ground there 
with you know the millions of Muslims that came to Saudi Arabia for Hajj, did this strike you as a a very religious segment of Islam, or there a mix of kind of less religious and more religious people there? I mean, what would you say you found, and and do you think that could be sustained? You know, as Saudi opens up some more. I think what you find is that there's a real mix of people. Like I said earlier, every, every Muslim believes they have to go at least once. And so they try and make the, the journey once in their lifetime. Some will try and go earlier, some will try and go later. But a lot of people go because they feel they have to. Now, when you're going around the Kaaba, what you hear is, La ilaha illallah, there's no God but Allah. You hear a lot of people reciting praises of God. But that's because of where you are. And now outside of that conversation, you know, you speak to people and ask people, why are you here? Some people say it's because they want to get that sense of uh, connection with God that they didn't have before. And what you, what you find is that there's a lot of people, especially those from the West. So I came with a group from London and everyone had very different views. Some people were a lot more traditional, some people were more liberal. There were a lot of people in my group, for example, were talking about how when you're at the Kaaba, when it gets to prayer time, all the women are kind of hushed and pushed back and the guards, the religious guards, come and get, essentially tell women to stand up and move back or move onto higher floors. A lot of the men get, get angry because it's not what we see normally in our mosques uh, back in, kind of in, in the West. Whereas a lot of people who seem local or at least speak Arabic kind of are siding with the religious guards. It's a bit hard to have those conversations within the, within the Grand Mosque but when you're outside of it and you're just speaking to people normally, a lot of these conversations are taking place about how the country could perhaps change to be a little bit more westernized or perhaps to fit in with what we feel our values, uh, or what we feel our Islamic values in the West. Now, when I was looking at the Hajj statistics, I noticed the breakdown between men and women. It looked like it was somewhere around uh, 60 percent men, 40 percent women in that range. But still, I was still surprised. I thought it was a, a large amount of women. And Siraj, you know, you, you went with your wife and it seemed like there are many couples who go there. Would the liberalization of, say, Saudi driving rules maybe attract more women? Is that part of the growth strategy to attract uh, more women in Islamic tourism in Saudi Arabia? I wouldn't be able to speak directly to that. But I mean, one of the main reasons that I can think of immediately that would actually stop women from going is that any woman who's under 40 has to go with a companion, a male companion. And so there's, they wouldn't get a visa to enter the country if they don't have someone who's uh, a direct relationship, who's a direct relation of some kind. So a lot of women have to go with a cousin or they have to go with a father or a brother. They can't just go by themselves. And so one way that if the Saudis really did want to bring in more women, is they could scrap that rule. Now, whether they will do that is uh, something to be seen. Um, when we were there, for example, you know, we would take a lot of taxis. I don't think anybody or any pilgrims, at the very least, would think of the driving ban as affecting their religious experience so much because no one's going to be renting cars. And if you're going with a tour group, the last thing you want to be thinking about is trying to figure out the roads because when you are out in Saudi for Hajj, the roads get crazy. <laughs> you have no idea which road is going to get blocked, which, road is, uh, which bridge is going to get blocked, and which road you could actually drive through. When we went, for example, we would take a Kareem, which is a bit like Uber, uh, but I guess it was started in Dubai. And we would 
be going, for example, from our hotel in Azizia to the Kaaba. And sometimes you'd get to a certain tunnel that would take you right to the Kaaba. And only the taxis were allowed and, and the Kareems weren't. So I, I think in that respect, I'm not sure that the driving ban itself is actually going to help or liberalize who actually goes for for Hajj. All right. One last question, Siraj. Another thing I've heard about with uh, the Hajj is that a lot of people have actually died going to it. There have been stampedes that have killed many people. How did safety factor into your trip? That's actually a pretty good question. So like I said, Muslims believe they have to go once in their lifetime. So they'll take whatever opportunity they can to go. And in a lot of countries, they have to wait a long time to take Indonesia, for example, the country which has the largest Muslim population in the world. There, citizens can wait between 12 to 17 years on the wait list. It's a really long time. So when they get their chance, they're going to go. And to some extent, people are aware that there's a safety risk. It's not like anyone's hiding it. It's definitely on the news. And there's actually a ritual that many pilgrims think that they should be doing before they go, which is writing your will. So, for example, the night before we actually left for Hajj, my wife and I sat down and we wrote our will together. We're both 26 and it felt very weird to be doing that. Um, but part of the pilgrimage is actually thinking about the preparation process, detaching from daily life and thinking about the idea that you're not meant to be coming back as the same person, but someone who's new, who's refreshed uh, and like a totally different version of yourself. And what you find is that because a lot of people have got into that state, by the time they get there, a lot of people are worried about the safety concerns. But at the same time, people feel a little bit more at ease and uh, are calmed down by that. And actually, no one's ever told me that the safety issues put them off from going to Hajj. They're worried, sure, but that's not stopped them. Like you said, there have been a number of issues that have, in just recent years, that have plagued the Saudis. So two years ago, for instance, hundreds of pilgrims, many of whom were from Iran, were crushed during a stampede in Mina. Fortunately, this year when we went, there weren't any similar events. But all around during the Kaaba, at the Kaaba, for example, we saw people who had fainted, um, even going around Tawaf. When I went around Tawaf, for example, when and that's when you go around the Kaaba seven times, it can get quite tough. And that was me, someone who's quite young. I consider myself fairly fit. But the deeper you go in, the closer you get to the Kaaba. By the time you've done those seven rounds, I could hear it in myself when I was trying to speak. It, I found it really tough to do so. And I was kind of, my energy had totally gone. Uh, and even to actually catch my breath, I really had to do that quite a lot. That event in Mina two years ago led to a lot of frustration because families and friends found that it wasn't a centralized system. They wanted to find out really if their friends and family were okay and they didn't. They just had no way of doing that. So now there are different groups who are encouraging pilgrims to wear ID cards with them. And so if anything does happen, then at least a group leader is called if anything has gone wrong. And this is kind of summed up quite well in the first workshop that we had before we left. We were told you will see people dying along the road. You don't want to be that person who just gets buried in an unmarked grave and no one knows where you are. Now, we didn't see we didn't see anyone dying, and we did see people fainting, and we saw people kind of being sent to hospital. I did see people in, a lot of people in Medina who had passed away. I didn't actually see them dying, but I saw their graves being sent to the, um, to the cemetery. At the same time, the Saudis actually introduced, uh, or said they were, at least they said that they're going to introduce electronic ID bracelets for pilgrims. 
And that was two two years ago in 2015. But in 2017, so this year when we went, that still not happened. For example, there were some groups that had plastic wristbands and they seemed fairly durable. But pilgrims in my group, for example, just re- just got wristbands that were fairly eligible after showering for two days, which really wasn't helpful. It was just kind of as if they were made of paper. Um, so obviously, if you did lose those, they're not going to be helpful. We had uh, little tags around our necks that had our passport number, that had numbers for our group leaders, so they would, people would be able to call um, them if something did go wrong. And I managed to fortunately hold on to my tag the whole way through, except for I actually lost it on the very final round of me going around the Kaaba. So fortunately, I didn't lose it any earlier, uh, but that was kind of fairly lucky on my part. And there are other efforts to create safety too. Uh, so for example, because it's now so hot, there are huge mist sprays all throughout the streets as you get closer to the Kaaba and also in Mina as you're walking along because it does get so hot. So they try and cool people down. There are some; They even have some guards and uh, people along the roads who are just helping you and they spray water at you constantly as you go along. So it's not just the mist sprays, but when it gets particularly tough during the daytime, for example, there are people actually spraying water at you just to cool you down. And then there's the other issue of infrastructure and security. So, for example, as I mentioned, there are sometimes there are bridges that get closed and they try and stop so many people being in the same place at the same time. So what we found that after the three main days of Hajj, when people then try and go back into the Kaaba, it can get quite busy. So during those periods, they actually close down certain floors or certain sections so that you just can't get into them. And so, for example, you may have to go all the way to the top floor and then work your way down from there. Uh, And there's about seven floors. But what we found is that a lot of the time people would want to try and be as close to the car as possible on the ground floor. But they just close it off because they didn't obviously want to have people injured and getting hurt right so close to the car All right. Well, thank you, Siraj. Thank you, Donna. This has been really uh, interesting and informative. And I I learned a lot. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Siraj is at, at dat, D-A-T-S. And you can check out his own podcast on the Hajj called The Pilgrimage. Uh, you can find that online, too. Donna is at, at Donna A-N-1. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.